Mother Knows Death presents External Exams with Nicole and Jemmy. Every week on Mother Knows Death, we will be doing an external exam and we will be interviewing various experts. Last week, Maria and I discussed the mass shooting that was in Maine that killed 18 people and injured 13 people, as well as days later, there was another potential mass shooting that did not happen because they found the mass shooter had, he killed himself, but he was found with multiple ammunition, rifles, handguns, IEDs, etc. in an amusement park in Colorado. So unfortunately, mass shootings have become a, a frequent topic that comes up all the time in, in, in my field anyway. And today we're going to be with Dr. Jonathan Metzel, and he's a leading expert in the forefront of movement of advocating for gun reform as a matter of public health. And this coming January 30th, 2024, he's coming out with a new book that's available for pre-order right now. So make sure you get that. I'm actually going to talk to him about him sending me an advanced copy, hopefully. And it's called What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. Welcome to the show. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here having this conversation. This it, it, It's just really an honor to have you. You're so accomplished. So that we're just going to go through some things and get to know you a little bit better in your thoughts on this, because I know that this is a huge fear of mine, just being an American. So there's been multiple explanations about gun violence in as far as it could be from mental health issues. It could be from playing video games. It could be from the gun laws and then the guns themselves, social media. But these things are also present in other countries as well. Other, most other countries have access to social media, firearms, etc. So what is it about gun violence and mass shootings that is specific to the United States? I'm asking you because we have a lot of people that listen from other countries that might mm -hmm. not be as familiar. Well, first, let me just say, I'll say two things in answer. I think it's a great starting question. The first is just to recognize how off the charts the United States is in terms of gun ownership and also in terms of shootings. So we are just completely on an island by our by ourselves, really. We have a Second Amendment, obviously, in this in this country, in our Constitution, that tells people, um, you know, there's a right to bear arms. But what what that Second Amendment means has been the topic of great debate. And so before, like the 1980s individual people couldn't own guns. The, the idea was basically guns are for the police or military or um, safety officers, et cetera. And there was a shift that started in the 1980s where we reinterpreted the Second Amendment to mean um, it was a push by the NRA and conservative politicians and you know all the people we, we kind of know now. But it was totally out of the blue in the 80s. People thought that was nuts. Um, but basically a push to say that a, a, a militia, a person has the same uh, rights as a militia. And it led to a push where we increasingly allowed private citizens to own guns. And I mean, we could always kind of own guns for hunting and stuff, but to carry them. 
And so what we've seen in this country really since the 80s is just an absolute gold rush of for, for gun companies of sales to private people. And we've gone from relatively normal gun ownership rates, you know, people who hunted or had their musket from their grandfather or something. Um, now we have um, more than one gun per person in this country. We have about 330 million people in the country and we have about 450 million civilian owned guns. So there's no other country that has as many guns as we do. And with guns come shootings. And so we also are way off the charts in terms of civilian shootings, anything from um, homicide to suicide to mass shootings, partner violence, accidental shootings. We have probably now over 50,000 gun deaths a year in, the, in, in our country. And so it's important for people who are not in the United States just to recognize really how abnormal that is. I mean, there are places that there are militaries and war and things like that, but we're talking about like people owning guns, carrying guns, shooting each other in daily life. So point number one is that. And then point number two is just an intro is it's really important also to note the mass shootings are terrifying and mass shootings are becoming much more common. We used to have less than one mass shooting a day in 2018. And now we have almost two mass shootings a day in this country. But by far the most gun death in this country is gun suicide. It's not even close. Um, and so uh, like a couple of years ago, I had a book come out, uh, 45,000 gun deaths in this country, 28 or 29 were gun suicide. So it's also really important to note that most gun death is gun suicide, which for me is much more preventable than, than mass shootings in some ways. So I think those are two jumping off statistical points that we might talk about. And I'm happy to say more about what you asked about mental illness and and um, video games and stuff like that. But I just think to be on the ground of like how just how weird the United States is is, is a good jumping off point. Okay, yeah, I I definitely wanted to talk. I want to talk about all that other stuff too. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that a little bit later. But you were just saying how mass shootings are just so scary, which I agree. I they're they're one of my biggest fears, to be honest with you. And I feel like it's almost getting to the point where it's Groundhog's Day. It's like you turn on the news and there's a shooting. Now, I, I couldn't even name all of them that even happened this year just because it just happened so frequently. And my first initial reaction is, is that I get really upset and then I watch the news like crazy or look at it online for the first day just to be like, who was it? What happened? Who died? You know, all the questions that people have. And then... It, it's just like the same stuff keeps happening. It's like the lawmakers put out their tweets and say thoughts and prayers. And then one side blames the other side. The other side blames the other side. And then within 48 hours, it's like it's like nothing happened. And I, I feel like do you feel like Americans have almost some kind of level of like PTSD when it comes to gun violence as far as not even just directly being involved with it, but just hearing about this stuff every single day on the news. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. It's it's called habituation. We've habituated this. Um, and in the, you know, even 15 years ago, or think back to when we had, um, you know, those early mass shootings, um, Parkland or, um, um, you know, the, the, the school in Colorado, uh, like all those early mass shootings, 
we would talk about it for months. And now a lot of research shows that this trend that you're talking about, which I talk about, that's kind of the theme of my book, What We've Become, that's coming out in January, is I talk about how we've come to, I don't want to say normalize it because it's not normal, but there's an arc. I tell the story in the book of the Nashville Waffle House mass shooting in 2018. And what I show is that there's a really predictable pattern where there's shock, trauma, fear that ripples outwards. People who are not in the city or immediately affected also feel an emotional response to it. And unfortunately, um, it lasts four days. Um, people are shocked. They're horrified. They call for action. They feel helpless. And then they, then the next thing happens or something. So our cycle of this stuff, you're exactly right. Um, you know, it's not four days for people who were effect affected personally, right? They're, they're living with this for the rest of our lives. But because there are so many of these stories that just feel exactly the same, I mean, they literally, sound, they just feel so similar that in a way, our, our response is, um, there's almost a pattern of it where, and you can follow it in news stories also, um, you know, two days is the peak, three days is the, where it starts to go down. And within the fifth day, um, we, we've unfortunately moved on to the next headline. And so I, what I ask is, what does that do to our psyche as a country, as people, if we're seeing these horrible things and, and, and we're in a way moving on in not really moving on, but what I say is that's what people do in war. Uh, and so we are living with a kind of PTSD right now. It's, it's, it's really crazy. Cause in my lifetime, like I grew up in the eighties and I mean, maybe my parents kept me sheltered or whatever. I don't know. But I didn't hear about any kind of mass shooting until the, the first one that you spoke of, which was Columbine in 1999, that was. Right. And I know that that kind of coincides with like when 9-11, around when 9-11 happened and the whole like 24-hour news cycle thing started, because I don't think that that was really happening prior to 9-11, um, that that there was like channels that just had the news on all day. If there were, I don't, I'm not really sure how popular it was, but um, also the internet as well came like kind of came out around that time too. So I guess my question for you, as far as that is how, how much of the blame of this, I guess, do you put on the, not only just the, the news media, but also social media because these people not only have this platform where they're able to like discuss their crazy thoughts with each other and that that in itself is is a problem but also you have the news that kind of makes these people like famous and has there been any kind of like studies on mm -hmm. that stuff yeah i mean the hard part is so i can argue both sides of this honestly because on one hand you're absolutely right. When you grew up in the 80s, this wasn't really happening. Um, uh, we, our first kind of quote unquote mass shooting was in the 1940s, a guy who had come back from uh, from uh, late 1940s, a World War II uh, guy, um, which I talk about in the book. But in terms of the phenomenon that you're describing that starts really with Columbine, um, it's, it's the advent of the internet. Um, and, but it's also the accessibility of guns that civilians couldn't get before. Um, and so the fact that it was a lot easier to get semi-automatic weapons, particularly in the early 21st century, when people started to get very, it's very easy to get an AR-15, which 
average person couldn't get. Um, and so the U.S. isn't like there are pl- there are just as the same number of attacks in other countries. But if you look at like the news in the U.K. or India or something like that, it's like crazed person attacks somebody with a hammer or with a knife or with a machete. It's it's horrible, but it doesn't have the same body count. And so part of what we started seeing was um, number one, access to firearms. Number two, as you're suggesting, a very strong copycat phenomenon uh, where people, I mean, just because we're so normalized to this stuff, it's hard to get in the news. It, you know, you, it's just, there's, it's like, oh, what are you going to do that's worse than the horrible thing we just had two days ago? And so there's a copycat phenomenon. So it's all these things kind of together um, that really, I think, really have created this thing that I don't know. I'm curious about your sense. I mean, for me, it just feels out of control, right? Because it's like um, access to guns, a political gridlock, um, and it just—I don't know—just the the, rep, the rep, repetition of this is honestly the word is just exhausting. It's exhausting, right, to have to live like this. I think this is this like this simile I'm going to give you has actually nothing to do with guns, but we have this highway in, in near Philadelphia that only has two lanes going in and out of it right and it it was created i don't even know when it was created years ago when my when my parents were little but they they basically say they can't they can't make the highway any bigger because of the way the mountain the mountain is it goes around in just different different ways that they can't make the highway any bigger so they just kind of instead of really trying to fix the problem they've just ignored it since you know the 1950s and now and now here we are with with double the population and the problem's still there because i think they just feel so overwhelmed by it they don't know how to fix it so they just kind of like hope it'll go away or something <laughs> and i yeah. i feel the same way about the gun thing like especially when you're talking about in the 80s when they really could have like nipped that and and got it under control but even when they did recognize it was a problem, it was definitely in the 90s, right? And then why are we letting decades go on and on and not doing anything at all to kind of like reel it in a little bit? You know what I mean? And no, totally. it is exhausting. No, it, it does feel like that mountain that you can't move. I mean, it's it's interesting. Like we're having this conversation on a Monday tomorrow. Um, the Supreme Court's going to hear a case about whether someone accused of domestic abuse has has a second amendment right to guns so it's it's just it's just almost pathetic really honestly where we are right now uh, and and what could have been done i mean it, it's interesting to note like right now it, you know it's it's hard right now to think about what can be done because it's really a numbers game right now there are millions and millions and millions of gun owners who never fire their guns and so how are you going to like uh, the gun owner who i interview a lot would say how are you going to restrict my access to my AR-15, which I use for sport shooting or I really like owning? And it's true. We have like tens of millions of AR-15s in ownership right now. And and one person commits a mass shooting and they'll say, well, does that mean we should restrict AR-15s to everyone um, because of that one person? And that the answer easily would have been yes 20 years ago. But now... There are so many AR-15s in circulation that even if you restricted AR-15s, there's there's just way too many of them out there that that you know that 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 it's just going to be hard to to get them all back, honestly. Um, 
And then this, you mentioned mental illness before. And I, for people who don't know, I'm a psychiatrist and a sociologist. And so a lot of my work looks at mental illness and gun violence. And what I argue is that it's again, a numbers game because the dramatic majority of people with mental illness don't hurt anybody else. In fact, people with diagnosed mental illness are much more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators of violence. And so how do you pick that one person who's going to do this horrible thing out of the hundreds of millions of people who are diagnosed with mental illness? It's just, you know, I I think you're exactly right to say when this thing first started, we could have nipped it in the bud the way we do with any other consumer product that kills people. But now I think part of the hopelessness isn't just that it keeps happening, which it does. It's also that it just feels like, what can we do at this point with so many guns and so many shootings? It just feels like it, you know, that's what I argue in the book. These mass shootings become constitutive of who we are. Like it's, this is just what we have to put up with to be Americans right now, which is kind of depressing, but I think we might as well be honest about it as a starting point. It is. And, and, you know, I, I grew up in a family with guns. My grandfather <laughs> hunted, taught my brother. Um, and it, it was never a, a it was never used in any kind of a negative way. They 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 locked them up responsibly, legally purchased everything else. So I'm always I'm always torn. And, and of course, I'm torn to take away guns because of of what you said, that, that you're not take you can't get rid of them. And I actually would feel more comfortable to have have guns knowing that other ones are out there because I know that 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 we would just have it for safety purposes, you know, not to go do anything. Um, and another point that you made is, is how draining it is to live like this. And honestly, like it's really affected me so much so that I had my, um, my middle daughter, I had her in school in, in preschool and it was in 2018. And on the day after Valentine's day in 2018, which so happens to be the day after the Parkland shooting, the school had a function that was like, oh, let let the kids' family come to school, like grandparents, sisters, brothers, whatever. And I went to the school and the door was just wide open, like anybody could have walked in. And it just, I, it sent me down this rabbit hole of, of like, this is going to happen at this school. My kid's going to get shot, blah, blah, blah. And I decided to take my kid out of school and I homeschooled my kids for like two or three years. Wow. Before I was like, what the hell am I doing? I <laughs> I need to put my kids in school. But it's it's like such a big fear of mine. So do you have any advice to people that like it like it's never personally happened to me, but it affects me so much that it like actually made was making me make huge decisions in my life as far as I mean, that stuff this goes. is to me the definition of terrorism, honestly. They got the Terrorism makes us feel unsafe in in places that should be avenues of daily life, right? Um, and that's easy if we think about someone somewhere else in the world or a suicide bomber or something. But think about what you're saying, right? Um, afraid to send your own kids to school. I mean, what's the role of society? It's to keep people safe. That's that's why we join together in civilizations is to keep people safe and. Um, you know, for some people, including people I interview for my book, they say, well, I feel safe if I'm, if I'm carrying my AR-15 all the time, or they want to be armed all the time. Um, and, um, so for some people, their notion of safety is just 
it, it, for me, it's, it's really, again, exhausting because to be on guard all the time that somebody's going to potentially shoot you in the grocery store or when you're out bowling, like in Maine, um, uh, earlier or, you know, sending your kids, like it just, I don't know, at a certain point, that kind of hypervigilance really has a real psychological effect on people. It really does. And certainly it has a massive effect on people who are caught in this, but just the trauma of being a fear all the time and of mistrusting other people. It's to me, to me, it's, I mean, we'll see what, how this goes, but in the book, I argue that everything that happened in the pandemic where everybody split apart in a million different pieces, it was predicated on the divisions we'd already set up in the gun debate where people's idea. I mean, I don't ever interview people who say like, I don't want to be safe. I want to be unsafe, but people's idea of what it means to be safe is so different really in, in regard to their relationship to guns. And so it's, uh, you know, how do we, how do we put that back together? I know that was your question for me, but I'm just mirroring that that's well, a really it, hard it question. It's an interesting point that you bring up because my next question was going to be about like this, like safety in school in general. And it, I just told you that my biggest fear is that is my, is something like that happening at my kid's school. But me personally, I would almost feel better if there was like a cop there that had a gun. I don't know. Like, I know that a lot of people are against that, but I I do have this sense of just because I grew up around it and know people that are like responsible with it that would protect you kind of. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like the president has people protecting him with guns. Banks have people protecting the bank with guns. So and that's money. That's not your child. You know, that's your ch not your child. So I, I kind of, it might sound silly for me to say. It doesn't that, sound silly that. at all. No, it sounds really deep and honest, right? I mean, I totally agree. Um, again, y you shouldn't have to live in a society where you send your kids to school and worry if they're going to come home. Um, and and I agree with you that that's kind of where we're at. Like it, it's um, it's it's naive to say, oh, let's just buy up back all the guns, you know, that's not the world we live in. And so that is going to be in the back of people's mind, uh, stuff like this happens and that's going to be in, in the, in the back of their minds. And so, um, I mean, I, I, it's not like I'm some gun grabbing liberal who, whatever, like, I mean, I have a lot of complex opinion, opinions about this, having studied it for a long time, but my dad was in the air force. I was born in the, on an air force base. Like I've been around different forms of weapons, different times in my life. Um, but, but it's just, it's just, um, I guess the two questions are number one, um, what does that do to us? If every time we send our kids out into the world, we're worried this is going to happen to them. And then number two is if we protect schools really well, um, there's just going to be some other target. I mean, look at what happened in, in Maine where people were playing cornhole. Like, I mean, you, you just can't protect every single thing. I mean, what, when, what, that sounds like a military zone. And so in a way for me, it's got to involve some kind of coming together. What I argue in the book, and, and I, this is where I think the book's going to be controversial. I, I argue that we're too far gone to mandate behavior. I think the pandemic for me taught me that in a way, like I can tell you what I think a good health policy is. I think it's important to wear a mask and get a vaccine. And I have plenty of friends and colleagues who feel completely different and I can't make a policy that makes them wear a mask. And we're almost at that point with guns where um, 
I think there should be background checks. I think there should be, you know, I honestly think there should be a assault weapons ban, but, but I also know my policy is not going to work on a lot of my friends here who are ardent gun. I mean, I'm in Tennessee. I know, <laughs> I know a lot of people who care a lot about guns. Um, and so I think we really need to focus in addition to finding the right policies. I argue that we need to really go back to basics and think about what it makes for us, what makes us feel safe in a community? How can we make communities safe? Really build build communities that where people don't fear each other, which sounds kind of naive, but I just, I've become almost a structuralist doing this work. I started off being like, a, we need policies that control things. And I actually don't feel that way anymore. I feel like um, what makes you feel safe? What makes the school feel safe? Well, I mean, that's the question. What makes the school feel safe? Maybe it's having an armed guard but it's also, you know, the neighborhood, the um, the lighting, the parks, the fact that you know your neighbors. Like, we need to kind of reinvest in our communities in a way. So that's kind of where I'm coming down on these issues right now. But it's, it's. In, I mean, I'm a doctor, but I, I'm kind of feeling like the policies of controlling other people's behavior is that might have worked in the cigarettes or seatbelts, but we're <laughs> we're not there now. <laughs> Yeah. And I think this is a good point you're bringing up because I think like my my whole feeling is like if you're going to do the two worst things ever, which is like commit the worst crime ever, murder, and both legally and and morally, like you're not going to follow any gun laws. (laughs) You're just not you're not going to you're not going to care. And there are a lot of gun laws in place, but like Maine is a perfect example. I mean, this is just one that happened this week or not last week, whatever of like these laws, they, they don't help all the time. There's a lot of gray area and they're not followed. And so, so just making more laws necessarily isn't going to make things better. Well, I, 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 the one caveat though, I will say again is Mass shootings are what get our gets our attention, um, but we could dramatically cut gun death in this country. Um, w- I mean, I'm not against all laws. Um, I, I think that, um, like partner violence, for example, um, like the Supreme Court case tomorrow, I sure hope they come down and say that someone with a restraining order um, does not have a right to gun, because we know really clearly from data that. Um, if someone has been abusive to their partner in the past, they're going to do it again in the future. I don't think that person should have a gun. I don't think people should be able to drink and carry weapons the same way that we don't let people drink and drive. I mean, there's a ton. I mean, I have a whole list of things I talk about in the book. Um, and I and I think that, um, you know, we could really cut dramatically gun suicide, partner violence, um, certain kinds of homicide, accidental shootings. So it's not like we're we're just going to keep going forever. I mean, I do think there are things we could do. The hard part about this, though, is that mass shootings, for understandable reasons, are what are the most terrifying, and by far those are the hardest kinds of shootings to predict or to prevent. I mean, we heard it in Maine that everybody said, "I can't believe we it happened here," but everybody in Maine probably has a gun. Um, so the fact that somebody just snapped one day is is really it's just it's much harder to predict that but i still think we could dramatically cut gun death if we 
if we really got serious about stopping the other kinds of shootings that are much more much more patterned yeah i think i think a big issue is which i i i'm semi familiar with the whole buying a gun situation throughout the country it's just so different from state to state i feel like it's kind of weird how the variation i live in new jersey i i um i think that our laws are pretty good you have Mm -hmm. to kind of like if you want to you have to wait a little while if you want to get something it's not as as easy but in pennsylvania which is literally 10 minutes away from where i'm at right now you could just go you could just walk in a store and and buy a gun right but i don't know if there's been any studies done with states with like stricter laws like that versus yep and is does it show that there's a decrease in, in yep. <laughs> yeah, yep. well, no, the the problem is, so in other words, the safest place to be statistically for a mass shooting is to be in a state with the kind of laws. New, New Jersey is a great example. New Jersey, excellent leadership in this area for a couple of reasons. I mean, it's got great laws, but it's also the Rutgers has a gun safety center. So a lot of research about keeping people safe. Um, if you live in a state that has tight gun laws, relatively, I mean, for U.S. standards, and you're surrounded by other states that have tight gun laws, your your rate of mass shooting is a lot lower. Um, so New York is surrounded by Connecticut and New Jersey, for example, its rates of this kind of stuff are a lot lower than Tennessee. Or the, I wrote my book about um, the Waffle House mass shooting and um, the mass shooter was in, in, in Illinois and drove to just drove across state lines and he he went from being an illegal gun owner to being a legal gun owner literally by driving 35 minutes across state lines and so until we have like a national policy um it's it's just going to be this patchwork thing so you're definitely safer to to be in a in a state that has tight gun laws especially if you're surrounded by other states that have tight gun laws and you would just think in an ideal world, we would learn from the places that have fewer mass shootings and enact those laws. Like, I don't see why that's so hard, but apparently it is. It's it's also weird that there's not that you don't have to get some kind some kind of training. Like if you want to drive a car, you have to take a driver's license test just so you can show that you could basically operate the vehicle. Not that it prevents most people from just sucking at driving or whatever, but like <laughs> well. At least it's like you check the box and like people have to do a written test and a driving test to show that they have some competency, right? Like, I mean, I can give you a full list. I'll just give you four examples of what we should be doing and what we are doing that are exactly in line with that. So um, training with a firearm to get a a license um, or a permit or anything like that is people are less likely to have to shoot a gun if they've been trained how to use that gun. And that's true in countries where people, for example, have military service and then they have guns as civilians. It's true in in the United States as well. And so what are we doing? Well, we're doing exactly the opposite. We are letting people just go into wherever, Walmart or wherever, and buy an AR-15, go to a gun show, go online. So there's been a dramatic push. Um, Tennessee is a great example there used to be a significant training requirement and now there's barely anything. Um, and so you can basically just buy a gun with no, no training. Um, people have what's called permitless carry. Now you don't need a permit, all these things. And so we've done the opposite of that. Um, 
alcohol, if alcohol is present and there's an argument, there's about a five to seven times greater chance that you're, that a gun is going to be um, fired in anger. So you would think um, you wouldn't have guns in bars, but instead in Nashville where I am right now, you can carry a loaded gun into pretty much any bar in town. Um, so, but we're, do, we're letting guns in bars. If somebody has a history of domestic abuse, um, they're more likely to shoot their partner. You would think those people shouldn't have guns, but yet the Supreme Court tomorrow is hearing whether domestic abusers can have guns. And I can just go down this full list of what we should be doing and what we are doing. And in pretty much every case, we're doing the wrong thing as a country. So this is where I think politics, we need to change our politics. I think it's the the bar thing is interesting because for me, it's like, obviously, they shouldn't let someone go into a bar with a gun. But then if you're like, let's say I'm out to dinner with my husband and we go to the restaurant, like the guy that comes in the bar that wants to shoot people is he's not reading the sign out front that says don't carry your gun in and then maybe like my husband who's a responsible gun holder that would protect not only us but people in the restaurant then wouldn't have it because he was told not to have it you know what i mean and i know that that i know that that's not probable but you do hear sometimes that armed citizens are are taken out yeah people do you, should i give you the uplifting supportive counterpoint or the real world depressing <laughs> counterpoint i mean you, the both, real please <laughs> okay the um the the uplifting counterpoint is i hope you have a lovely dinner with your husband um, <laughs> um the depressing counterpoint is twofold number one unfortunately if somebody and data shows this again defensive gun use just given the speed through which semi-automatic bullets fly. If somebody's coming in with a plan, um, it's it's much better to have no guns somewhere because the, the thought that somebody's going to whip out a gun in a in a restaurant in the time that it takes for them to just understand what is happening while somebody else has had, you know, 10 years planning this crime or something like that. It just the data is not that great. You're much more likely to shoot some other, you know, by accident pat or patrons and stuff like that. Um, but we've got a history. I mean, if you look at like Dodge City, Kansas and the Wild West or the OK Corral or all these saloons, you always had to check your gun with the sheriff before you went even into the saloon and like the old frontier days. So it's not like we don't have any history of that. In fact, the whole history of guns in this country has been. Let's check. Let's check them at the door, even if we let people have guns. And so I don't know, we we, we somehow forgot that along the way. Yeah, it is it is crazy how the law could have been misinterpreted or whatever happened that now we've gotten to this point. And it is you just sit there, you hear and and I know that you have this thing that both sides have to come together to come up with a resolution because it's not clearly like it's not working and that they're they're just so extreme on both sides like get rid of the guns or like it's not a problem with the guns at all <laughs> and yeah. you're like come on if you talk to any person in the world they'll they'll say it th something needs to be done like nobody's cool with what's happening right now but 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 i mean that's in part of the issue is that i really feel like the average person could figure out a solution to this it's actually not that hard i mean literally every other country in the world 
Um, you know, I've studied guns in Israel, obviously right now, very contested um, position, uh, part of the world. But I've studied gun laws because Israel has, b before all of what's happening now, everybody is trained in a gun in the military, but they have very, very small rates of like mass shootings and stuff like that because everybody gets training and to just carry a gun in public, you have to be above age 30 or, you know, 40 for some people. Um, even places, my point is just even where there are a lot of guns, um, they don't have the problem we do, which is just anybody can ha have a gun. And so it's not that hard. We just have to figure out what every other country in the world, except ours, has done. But the but we, but 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 the problem is, even though like I would say probably eighty five percent of people agree on background checks and red flag laws, all these things. But the problem is our political system does not let the average person get in the room with somebody who doesn't agree with them and just figure out a solution. Our political system really rewards these extreme positions, and so it's not just a health problem. It's really how are we going to change our politics? And I think that's un underneath a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And that could be said about a lot of different yep, issues too. Every single issue. Yep. <laughs> yep. Just guns. All right. So I, since you are a psychiatrist and psychologist or psychiatrist? I'm a, psych I'm a psychiatrist and a sociologist. Yeah. I, okay. I direct a department at, at Vanderbilt. That's, that's awesome. So uh, this is like a question I have for the, the kids, I guess. Um, I don't, talk i i'm pretty i talk to my kids about like everything except this because i don't want them to be scared i i kind of want your advice on this like they definitely do these drills at school and um but but i ask them i try because they're nine and ten years old so i say like what it, well what are they doing it for oh in case a bad person comes to school they don't specifically mention that and they don't know about the the one that happened at, in Texas, um, I I actually like shut the news off for six months after that because I just was like, I can't function like it was mm. bad. But um, so I don't I don't say anything to the kids. But then I'm like, am I doing them a disservice by not saying it to them? Because if it does happen, they would just be completely unprepared. Whereas I heard some things that even though I tried to avoid coverage of the other school, I heard some things about kids pretending to play dead and this and that. And, and I'm like, should I tell my kids this? Like, or is that going to. Yeah, there's, there's got to, I mean, I, in a way it, it's such a hard topic, right? Because your kids are going to read you. I mean, just cause you're not going to talk about where your kids, your kids are pretty smart about reading, you know, mom's not exactly <laughs> telling us the whole story right here. And then because of every, all, you're not their only information source, unfortunately. And so they're going to hear about it from other people too. And so I do think it's important to like talk about it in a supportive way, but not like freak kids out as much as possible if that, if that's possible. But I, I do think that, um, you know, it, it is part of why my book is called what we've become because we're like robbing kids of their childhood by telling them, Oh, go to school, but also, <laughs> you know, get into the, you know, hide behind the door if this horrible thing happens. But I, oh I do think that I do think that increasingly, um, you know, especially if they're bringing it up, I think it's important to say, like, our goal is to keep you safe and all that kind of stuff. But let's talk about it. So I do think that some degree of openness, if they start the conversation, can can be helpful. Yeah, that that's good. That's good advice. 
All right. So before we wrap things up, I just want to know a little bit about you. How how did you become? I, I'm really interested for people who might want to go to school for for this kind of stuff or who are interested in this. What 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 originally did you go to school for, and how did it lead you down this road of becoming an expert of mass shootings and gun violence? Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of my like professional history, I went to med school first, and I did. Um, internship residency fellowship in psychiatry and neurology so i totally trained as a psychiatrist first um, but i was always interested in kind of politics the real world um and and so i went back to school and don't do this at home but i got a phd um, in sociology while i was working in, in psych ers for a long time and i became a professor who studies kind of the relationship between really mental illness and politics and race um, and so I had a book come out, um, gosh, about 10 years ago now called the protest psychosis that looked at the overdiagnosis of schizophrenia in black men. And I kind of told the cultural story of why I thought that happened in the United States, which was part psychiatry, part sociology, part reading about mental illness and stuff. Um, and after that book came out, just every time there was a mass shooting, I'd get 10,000 calls from media about was mental illness the cause of of this mass shooting and all my research shows that that's actually not the case that even though certain of course shooters suffer from symptoms of of mental illness that there are the, all these other stories about race access to guns politics all these other bigger stories that we don't tell when we say mental illness caused a mass shooting and so I just kept getting these calls from media um and I thought, um, man, there must be something here. So I really started to devote pretty much all my time now to looking at questions of, of mental illness and mass shooting. And ironically, um, it's, I've shifted, as you can hear in my answers here. I used to be like, we need better policies. And now I'm a total structuralist. And I've got, gone to argue that um, you know, my model now is there's all this research, for example, that shows that neighborhoods with better streetlights and more parks have fewer shootings. And so instead of trying to like mandate behavior, like let's fix the streetlights and build parks and make people feel safer so that somebody walking around with a gun seems out of place. And so for me, I've gone from somebody who was a total policy person to somebody who's like almost like an urban structuralist now, <laughs> right? Where I think we need to like rebuild connections with each other in a way. That's that's really cool. And I think that that your work is just is really important right now, just because this is such a hot topic. And like the, the guy in Maine, he, he had he was here. He probably had some kind of schizophrenia or something. He was having psychosis. But but like you don't really hear that that often with with the shooters, because the other the other kid, the younger kid that was in Colorado that they found said that they said he was probably going to commit some kind of mass shooting with all the stuff he had. He had no, not even like a, a parking ticket. He had the cleanest yeah. record, no history of anything. Shocking. They said, I think they were saying that he played like Call of Duty at night, but like so do thousands or millions of other people that it, it's not a problem. So it it is interesting because I, I mean... On one sense, you say, okay, if you're going to go in and shoot like a bunch of kids, there's something wrong with you, right? <laughs> yeah. Some, but but that's not the same as, 
as me- like a mental illness, like like a bipolar or schizophrenia. And and again, people with those illnesses are much. There's nothing in any psychiatric diagnosis where the symptom is attacking somebody else. Um, so you're mu- they're much more likely to get beat up themselves than to attack somebody else. There's nothing predictive about psychiatric diagnosis. But I do have this theory. I've never tested it, but I do feel like if we did policies that um, that impacted the other kinds of shootings we've talked about, that I bet we would have fewer mass shootings. In other words, if we made if we made it much safer for domestic abuse and gun suicide and all these, if we just did that, I bet we would have less mass shooting as well. So that's really not a health decision; that's a political decision. I hope. I hope tomorrow the Supreme Court does the right thing, but it's it's sad that that's <laughs> that's how low the bar is that we're debating if somebody who's like beaten their spouse should have a weapon. But that's kind of where we are. Yeah. And it's it, you know, we, we've been covering the news stories every week and it's like I, I read it all the time. It, and yeah. It's so scary because you can't even you you can't all you do is get this piece of paper. That's a restraining order like that's that's really scary. That yeah. you have to that that anybody has to live like that, you know. What? So you have this book coming out in January, and are you working? So that's done. Obviously, you're just kind of waiting for that to happen. I my, my book came out last year, so it was like I oh great, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. That's great. But um, what are you working on? Anything else, or you're just kind of like chilling right now till the book comes out <laughs> well i i have two books so i had a book called dying of whiteness that came out in 2019 oh, okay. and, and that's getting reissued in february so there's a new version of dying of whiteness that's coming out and the new book bur- the new book what we've become is also is coming out in january and then i don't know i want society to figure it out so i can write a book about like music or sports or something like i'm you know <laughs> I'm as tired as the next person. So I hope we figure this out because I would like to write a cheerful book after this. <laughs> I know, right? It gets so depressing after yeah. a while. It's just like, yeah. but I, I mean, you're you're so pleasant to talk to. So thank you so much for coming on. You, My honor. Where could anybody, do you have a website or social media sure. that people could follow you? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm uh, on, it's jonathanmetzel.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-M-E-T-Z-L.com. Has all my information there. Um, and then I'm usually a Twitter person, but for this interview, I, I've just joined Instagram. So you can, <laughs> you oh, can cool. probably find me there because <laughs> so, awesome. um, so, so yeah, but yeah, just on my website, you can find all the stuff. All right. Awesome. We'll put, we'll link everything in, in, cool. um, the podcast and everything and on Instagram. So we'll Great. definitely shout you out because we want people to check out your stuff. Great. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks again for coming. Thanks so much. My honor. Thank you. Great conversation. Thank you for listening to Mother Knows Death. As a reminder, my training is as a pathologist assistant. I have a master's level education and specialize in anatomy and pathology education. I am not a doctor and I have not diagnosed or treated anyone, dead or alive, without the assistance of a licensed medical doctor. This show, my website, and social media accounts are designed to educate and inform people based on my experience working in pathology so they can make healthier decisions regarding their life and well-being. Always remember that science is changing every day and the opinions expressed in this episode are based on my knowledge of those subjects at the time of publication. If you are having a medical problem, have a medical question, or are having a medical emergency, 
please contact your physician or visit an urgent care center, emergency room, or hospital. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Mother Knows Death on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks.